The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our scripture reading this evening comes from Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let's, uh, let's pray together. God, we are are grateful. God, it, it is a joy that every time we gather, not just on Good Friday, but every time we gather, we gather remembering what Christ has done. And today's a special day that Christians all across the globe are setting aside to remember that in particular. And that we gather because Christ has done the reconciling work. God, that we worship because Jesus has paid it all. And we get to celebrate and root our hope in the fact that one day when we who trust in you stand before your throne, that we will claim one thing and one thing only. That Christ has died and that Christ has risen and that Christ will come again. Our hope of salvation, our hope of forgiveness, our hope of being washed clean from our sin, our shame, our guilt, our hope that death is not the end of the story comes only in the deep reality that Christ has died, and he has risen, and he has and will come again. So Lord, we love you. As we look at Romans 5, as we think about the cross, God, would you give us a deep knowledge and awareness and assurance that we cannot save ourselves, that we need you. We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Romans 5, 6 through 8. Paul writes, for while we were still Weak, that is helpless, sick, without hope, at the right time, the, the appointed time of God. In God's timing, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But our God, the God of the universe, the creator God, shows his love for us. Not while we were still sinners, while we were still guilty and corrupted through and through, Christ died for us. This is why we are here celebrating a death. It's why, as Christians, we would call a day marked by death good. This is Act 3 of the story of God. Redemption. The king lives and dies for the kingdom. 
I want you to hold in your mind Romans 5, 6 through 8. We're going to get back there at the end. But I want to kind of first spend the, the majority of our little bit of time together at a 30,000-foot view connecting for us Genesis 3 all the way to its culmination in John chapter 19 and then Paul's explanation for the cross in Romans 5. So i got to kind of get us back and take us on a journey through a big chunk of the story. So where we left off... In the story of God this past Sunday, the situation was not looking very good for humanity, right? So God's original design, as we saw in creation, was that mankind would dwell with him, that there would be intimacy and love, that they, as his image bearers, would join him in his work of ruling and reigning over the world. But it didn't take very long, right, for Adam and Eve to royally screw things up. God gives them one do not command. He says, do not eat from the knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they disobey this one command. They rebel against God. They eat from the tree. Sin as a reality enters into the world. And as we looked at this past Sunday, now because of the sin of Adam and Eve, all of humanity is born, declared guilty before God, and corrupt in our nature. In the words of our good author friend, Francis Spufford, we are not passive agents of entropy. We're not just agents of chaos or disorder. We don't just make a few mistakes every so often. We, at our core, apart from Jesus, are messed up. Which then leads to the third question of the story. If we're here from God and for God, and if what's wrong within us is sin, sin in us that has broken and separated us from God, then how do we fix the sin problem? That's the question of the third part of the story. If that's what's broken, if that's what's wrong with us and with, with the world, how do we fix the sin problem? In preparing for this uh, sermon, I wanted to see how folks thought about this, both their brokenness and how to fix it. And so I went to the deep well of scholarly research known as Reddit. And uh, thanks. And you would be shocked if you look at Reddit at the number of people who ask some version of this question. What's wrong with me and how do I fix it? Like, you'd be shocked if you just did a quick Reddit search or even a quick Google search, Yahoo Answers, whatever you want to do, and you just Google search this. So many people are saying, hey, I feel like I'm broken. I feel like I'm messed up. How do I fix myself? And the majority of responses that I found all centered around a couple of different suggestions. A few of them like read some books, eliminate negative thinking from your life, get good sleep, eat a good diet, get some exercise, get a good counselor and some good friends, hustle harder and implement these five life hacks for your life. Now, I'm good with all those things. Just to be honest, I'm pro-reading, I'm pro-good sleep, diet, and exercise, I'm pro-good counselors, good friends. I like the occasional life hack or two. But I found myself scrolling through answer after answer after answer, just asking myself this question, is this it? Like, is this the hope? Hey, I know that you feel like everything about you is messed up and everything about you is screwed up. Hey, have you tried, like, reading some books? And like maybe like eliminating some negative thinking and like have you thought about getting some friends? I think about this scene uh, from the sitcom How I Met Your Mother where Barney, who's one of the characters, is sitting in that little bar underneath the apartment and he's talking about Ted, another character, and he says this line. He says, I don't know why Ted is so sad. I'm never sad. When I'm sad, I just stop being sad and I start being awesome instead. <laughs> Which to me, it's like, hey, do you feel like everything's broken within you? Have you ever just thought about like not being broken and instead being awesome? Is that our hope? Is that our hope? I think it begs the question of, is there a different way? How do we fix 
the brokenness? How does the sin that has bent our souls get fixed and redeemed? Or to use the language of the scriptures, how are we to be saved? As you move right from Genesis 3 further into the Old Testament, this question, how is the brokenness of humanity going to be fixed, is one that plays out prominently on the surface of the scriptures. So we saw last week, when you just move one chapter right from Genesis 3 into Genesis 4, that the first descendants of Adam and Eve, there's already violence, right? One brother kills the other brother. Violence just kind of takes over the world, so much so that a little bit later, God's like, nope, I'm going to start over. He wipes out the population with a flood, except for Noah and his family. Noah and his family turn out to be kind of corrupt too, and things just get worse and worse and worse. And then if you fast forward from the book of Genesis into Exodus, God's people find themselves in slavery in the land of Egypt. So they're under oppression from Pharaoh, this foreign ruler. God raises up Moses. He delivers his people 10 plagues. It's very cool. He calls them to himself, and in part of saying, hey, you are going to be my people now, he gives them what's called the law. So think like Ten Commandments and then some. It's this standard and way of living that they're to follow as God's people. And to be honest, if you're reading the narrative honestly, you kind of ask the question as a reader or start to think, okay, this is going to fix them. Like I see all of the sin problems in Genesis. I see all of the problems of what's going wrong. Finally, God has fixed it by giving them a standard of living. Like finally, God has given them some rules, he's given them some laws, he's given them this kind of way of life that is supposed to set them apart as God's people. Finally, they get what they need. They have a religious set of do's and don'ts. That is what is going to fix the sin problem in their hearts. But then you keep reading, and even while Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the law from God, the people are down at the base of the mountain collecting all of their gold and fashioning it into a statue of a cow, saying, let's worship this. So immediately as the reader, you go, hey, that's not going to work. Like the law is not going to fix what is ultimately wrong. But God's not surprised by this. He's not caught off guard. And so even in the law, he sets up this extra part of it known as a system of sacrifices. It's laid out for them in Leviticus, that part of the Bible we never read, where God's people, when they rebel and disobey the law, as he knows they will, he sets up a means by which they can offer sacrifices. And so now as the reader, you're going, okay, yeah, maybe the law is not going to fix them. Maybe the law is not going to fix what's broken in them, but good news for them, they now have a set of sacrifices. If we keep going a little bit more to the right, this becomes not enough for God's people. God's people who are supposed to be set apart as his people now want a king. They say, God, give us a king. Can we please have a king? And God says, no, you don't need a king. I'm your king. You're supposed to be set apart for me. And they're like, no, we don't want to be set apart. We want to be like every other nation. Give us a king. And so God gives them a king. And we as the reader are tempted to think, awesome, finally, now they're going to get it. They have a king. They have a ruler. They have someone to lead them, some earthly person to look to. That is what's going to fix their sin problem. Spoiler alert, the kings are also sinful. It does not go very well for Israel. You just keep seeing this pattern over and over and over through the Old Testament and in the story of Israel of mankind's heart-bent rebellion away from God and towards themselves. It's Genesis 3, to be honest, put on display over and over and over again. It's Genesis 3 continually choosing themselves, choosing their own way, choosing to trust themselves and be their own gods over God. 
There's so many theological realities kind of behind the broad sweeping narrative of the Old Testament and so many things you could talk about, but one of the overarching messages from Genesis 3 to Malachi 4, the end of the Old Testament, is this. Mankind cannot save himself from sin. Just right there on the surface, story after story after story, mankind cannot save himself from sin. They just can't do it. So if the question is, how do we fix our brokenness? How do we fix our sin problem? Before I tell us what the answer is, let me tell you what the Bible says the answer clearly is not. You and me, humanity, we are not the solution. We are not the answer. We cannot fix what is broken. How do we fix it? We don't. We cannot. You cannot fix yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot fix your, your sin problem. Not by more religion, not by more accomplishing, not by more rules following. We cannot save ourselves and fix our sin. Why? Because the Bible is clear. You and your sin are the problem. And me and my sin are the problem. And so the message of the Old Testament is not simply that we need saving from our guilt or we need saving from our shame or our sin. It's also that we need saving from ourselves. We need saving from us, from our ability to, as we learned last week, keep messing things up. The problem is within us. It's inherent within humanity. And we need something or someone from outside of us to come save us. But if we can't fix our brokenness, then the question becomes, okay, who or what can? Or to use the language of Paul in Romans 7, 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the good news for us is there's another thread running through the narrative of the Old Testament as well. So while we see over and over and over again that we cannot save ourselves, we also see over and over again God's faithfulness to his people and his promises that one day he's going to send a Messiah to fix the sin problem of their hearts. So while God is graciously and kindly giving them the law, giving them this standard to set them apart as his people, he's also giving them this incredible promise that one day someone is going to come who's going to fulfill the law perfectly. And that through that person's obedience, Jeremiah 31, he will actually write his law on the hearts of his people, meaning it will be as if they are righteous. While God is graciously giving them this sacrificial system, which deals with their sin in the moment and makes them right with God on this kind of ongoing basis, even then he's telling them, one day, I'm going to send a one true sacrifice. I'm going to send a true spotless lamb, the the spotless lamb who, according to Isaiah 53, will die the one time, once and for all, sacrifice for sins. Even as God mercifully gives them an earthly king, he promises, hey, this earthly king is just a foreshadowing. One day through the line of David, the second king of Israel, I'm going to send the one true king, and he's going to rule and reign and usher in the kingdom of God forever. And so these these two parallel threads running through the entire Old Testament. One, mankind cannot save themselves from sin. And two, God says, hey, someone's going to come who will. God's continual faithfulness to his people, his promises to one day send a savior. Enter Jesus. Enter Good Friday. Paul in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Enter Jesus, right? Thousands of years after the Genesis 3.15 promise of someone coming to crush the head of the serpent, Jesus arrives on the scene, and he comes to earth fully God. God the Son becomes fully man. He's born in Bethlehem, and he grows up, and he lives the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity as a carpenter. He begins his public ministry. He gathers 12 disciples who learn to be with him and become like him and carry on his teachings and his work. He spends two years traveling around, preaching the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, proclaiming over and over again, this is how you live in God's kingdom. Repent from your sin and trust in me. And eventually the fact that he keeps claiming to be God gets him betrayed by one of his 12 disciples, Judas. He's handed over to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. He's unfairly tried by both the Romans and the Jews. He's condemned. He's sentenced to death by crucifixion, which historians say is the most horrific and gruesome act of torture ever conceived in human history. And this is what we read in John 19. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth, verse 30. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So Christ comes and he lives and he dies. And right before his death, he declares, it is finished. What does that mean? What does it mean that it is finished? Go back to Romans 5. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. So God promises over and over and over again, I'm sending a Messiah. I'm sending a Messiah. I know that you can't fulfill the law. I know the sacrifices aren't going to be what lasts forever. I know that you want an earthly king and you think that's going to solve your problems, but I'm sending someone who is going to deal and perfectly fulfill all three of these things. And so first, the first thing that Christ does is he justifies us. Christ justifies us, which means while we were unable to fulfill the perfect law and standard of God, Christ comes and lives perfectly. He lives by God's commands. He never sins. He never rebels. He never goes outside the will of God. And so Jesus, who is perfect, not tainted by either the guilt or corruption that all of us are tainted with, still goes to the cross and dies a sinner's death. And he sheds his blood. And he takes our sin upon himself. And the Bible says that because Jesus shed his blood, verse 9, Romans 5, we are justified. It's a legal term. It's what happens in a courtroom when a, a judge declares over you not guilty. It's what sometimes theologians call the great exchange, where Christ takes our sin. He takes our law-breaking. He takes, takes our propensity to mess things up. 
He takes that upon himself, even though he was perfect, and in exchange, he gives us his perfect record, gives us his righteousness. So what happens is, according to Psalm 51, because Christ sheds his blood, that very blood washes all who trust in him as whiter than snow. And so when God looks at you, if you trust in Jesus, he doesn't see you as allowable. Like, oh, I guess I'll kind of like let him in-ish. He doesn't see you as a little bit dirty, but like the good always the bad. Like, I know you did some bad stuff, but like, good thing you helped that person. Like, good job. And notice this, church, he doesn't even see you as guilty but forgiven. He sees you as not guilty. He sees you as not guilty. He sees you as if Christ's perfection is declared over you on your behalf. He sees you as righteous. He sees you as fulfilling the very law that his people for thousands of years and you could never fulfill. He doesn't declare over you, hey, I know you're a mess up, but like Jesus died for you, so like there you go, there's some forgiveness. He declares over you not guilty, holy, righteous, pure, justified. We who live even still in constant and consistent disobedience get credited with Christ's obedience. He fulfills the law. By his blood, we're justified. And God views us as if we have fulfilled the law as well. But not only that, keep reading verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So first he justifies us, but then Christ also saves us through his sacrifice. So Christ fulfills the law through his perfect obedience, but he also fulfills the sacrificial system as well. So here's what happens. When Adam and Eve rebel against God in Genesis chapter 3, God in his holiness has righteous wrath and judgment for sin and sinners. God in his holiness cannot exist with sin, cannot dwell with sin. So he has righteous, just wrath for sin and sinners. He has to punish sin because he in his holiness cannot dwell with unholiness. And so part of what God is doing in the Old Testament sacrificial system is saying, hey, all of you guys, my people who keep rebelling against me, you're supposed to get my wrath. But instead of giving it to you, I'm going to pour my wrath out instead on this animal sacrifice. So part of what keeps happening in this Old Testament system. And so what happens is year after year, his people would go into the temple and the great high priest would sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people and God's wrath would be poured out on that sacrifice. And Jesus comes and says, I'm doing that once and for all. I am the one-time sacrifice. I'm going to become the true spotless lamb. I'm going to die one time perfectly for sins. And he takes the wrath of God willingly upon himself so that we can be saved. This is what's crazy about the upside-down kingdom of God. God himself takes his punishment. You ever think about that in the mystery of the Trinity? <laughs> that God himself would say, hey, I have to have wrath for sin and sinners, and so I'm going to be both the sacrifice and the wrath giver. And Jesus takes the wrath, do us, the punishment, do us, the punishment that we and our sins deserved, and so that God declares over us, we are no longer deserving of the judgment. We're saved. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Christ justifies us. He saves us from the wrath of God. And three, Christ reconciles us to God. He reconciles us 
to God. In case it wasn't enough to be justified and saved, he reconciles us. So in the garden, Adam and Eve have this deep, abiding, lasting, beautiful, intimate relationship with God. They walk in his presence. There's intimacy and fellowship. They're meant to live in God's kingdom as his image bearers, reigning with him forever. Sin breaks that. It separates them and us and all of humankind from God. And the constant desire of the human heart since then is to have and be our own king. Say, okay, we're separated from the one true king, and so I'm just going to run my life instead. That was what the Israelites were asking for. Give us a king. We reject God. We want to be our own people. Yet God dies for those who reject him. He dies for his enemies. He dies to bring us back into relationship with God, to bring us back into God's presence, to bring us back into God's right and rightful kingdom and kingship. So here's the answer to the question where we started. Why are we here for God and from God? What's broken, sin in us, our sin, guilty and corrupted? How do we fix our sin problem? We don't. Jesus does through his life, death, and resurrection. How do we fix our sin problem? We don't. Jesus does through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus on the cross declaring it is finished. Put it in the words of theologian John Stott, it says it this way. He says, God could quite justly have abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. It is what we deserved, but he did not. Because he loved us. He came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross where he bore our sins, guilt, judgment, and death. This is why we are here tonight. This is why we are here, that God did not leave us in our state as his enemies. That he did not leave us in our sin. He did not leave us in our brokenness. That he came after us in Christ Jesus. That the king who was rejected by his very kingdom said, I'm going to pursue, live, and die for those who have rejected me. I'm going to pursue, live, and die for those who would despise me. I'm going to pursue, live, and die for the very people I created who rebelled against me. And so the king comes to live and die to rescue his kingdom. And here's why this is good news, at least for me. This is why I need Good Friday. This is what I have to remember is that my heart bent naturally on its own apart from God is to want to live out the same thing that the Israelites lived for thousands and thousands of years. And here's what I mean by that. My heart bent apart from the good news of the gospel, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, even now as someone trying to follow Jesus, my natural default seems to be to continue to go back to, yeah, I see the cross, but like here's some other stuff that I think is going to fix my sin problem instead. My natural bent is to go, all right, uh, maybe I need to do the law more. Like maybe if I just followed a few more of God's commands, maybe if I just read my Bible a little more, maybe if I just prayed a little more, maybe if I just helped a little more, loved a little more, preached a little better, served a little more, gave a little more, fill in the blank, whatever it may be. If I could just do the law better, then God would love me. He would welcome me. Maybe even now as a follower of Jesus, he would love me more, welcome me more like me more, accept me more. And so I ignore thousands of years of Israelite people of God history that say the law can't fix your sin problem. And I say, yeah, but maybe it can for me. And then I also know that I'm not that good of a person. So when I fail to do the law, 
then I also put myself back under a Tim's version of the sacrificial system. And I say, okay, yeah, I can't really follow the law. I get that. Like, I'm kind of not righteous, whatever, sure. But now I start bargaining with God, doing my version of sacrifices. Hey, God, I, I know I rebelled against you. And I, I know that I did that thing you told me not to do. I know that in my heart, I see so much wickedness. Like, will you be okay if I like, yeah, like, I'm sorry I did that. But like, look, I like prayed over here. So like, you good? God, like, I know that I, like, yelled at my wife. I know that I, like, lashed out. I know that I was unkind and impatient, but, like, are we good if I, like, I don't know, like, I, like, confess more or, like, talk about it more or, like, read my Bible more or, like, worship really hard at church tonight? Or, like, God, I know that I, like, lusted again. I know I did that thing. I know I stepped into that. I know I drank too much. I know I, what, I, know I gossiped about that person, whatever. God, like, I know that I did that stuff. What sacrifice do you need from me? What do you need from me, Lord? What do you need? And then I get frustrated with that. So I go, maybe that's not the answer. Maybe the answer is I don't actually need God to run my life. Maybe the answer for me is I'll just run my life myself. And this religion stuff's not working. This Jesus stuff isn't working. This Christianity stuff isn't working. So maybe I'll just go like be my own king. And that's like a Tuesday. I think there's parts of us that all do that, right? that we would look at thousands of years of Israelite history and we would read through Exodus and we would say, you idiots. Like God's giving you a standard and you're just going to disobey it. And he's giving you the sacrificial stuff and you just keep rebelling against him. Like we just keep reading the Old Testament or going, those people just couldn't figure it out. And yet here we are on this side of the cross going, hey, what if we tried it too? What if we did the law too? Like what, maybe that'll save us. Maybe like our version of this will save us. Maybe like what, whatever particularly in the South, particularly in the, in the Bible Belt. And I think the invitation of Good Friday, for those of us who would grow cold or numb to the reality of a crucifixion, my heart included, is to say, man, Lord, I want to live under the law. I want to create my own sacrifices that I would look at you dying and say, not enough. That I would look at the bloodshed of the Son of God and say, yeah, but I could add to it. I could like sprinkle a little good works on it too, right? That I would look at Jesus taking on flesh, perfect in every way, yet becoming sin, forsaken by the Father, and say, thanks for that. What do you need from me, though? And the invitation of Good Friday is to come back to surrender. For those of us who follow Jesus, to say, hey, what are the areas in my life, the ways in my life that I'm trying to prove something before God? That I'm trying to earn something for God? That I'm trying to prove that he should love me? That he didn't make a mistake in saving me? That I'm okay? That I'll do better? For those of us who don't know Jesus, to surrender for the first time. And to say, I'm done trying to run my life. I'm done trying to save myself. I'm done trying to do these things to make myself right with you. I can't do it. It doesn't work. I need Jesus. That's the good news of Good Friday. That while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. To reconcile us to himself. To bring us back to him. That God, Christ saw us hiding, beat down, broken, rebellious. And he came to seek and save the lost. By faith, that all who trust in him by faith would have life forever with God, would be washed clean, would be made new. 
So here's what I want to do. We're going to move into communion. It's something we do every week, and I love that we do it every week. I love that we get to remind ourselves every single week of the good news of what Christ has done for us. But I think one of the things that can happen is we can, I can, I'm saying we, me too, can take this and we can celebrate it week in and week out in such a way where we would declare it. We would say wholeheartedly with our our full selves, yes, the body and blood of Jesus makes me right with God. And then on Tuesday, we're trying to do it ourselves. On Tuesday, we're trying to live on our own. On on Wednesday, we're trying to earn right standing with God. And so what I want to do before we take communion, we're going to get there. Before we do this, I just want to kind of give us some space. Sebastian's going to play in the background just to kind of eliminate uh, noise and distraction. And I just want to give you a, a couple of moments with the Lord in silence on Good Friday asking the question, Lord, what are the ways in which I am trying to earn standing with you? What are the ways I'm trying to keep myself? What are the ways I'm trying to make you love me more, make you proud of me? What are the ways that I'm trying to go, God, you didn't make a mistake in saving me. Like, don't you like me now? What are the ways that you are trying to put yourself back under a system of law and sacrifice and kingship? So I just want to give us some space to wrestle before the Lord by the power of his spirit to ask, Lord, would you show me ways that I am trying to save myself and not looking to the cross? And then I'll come back and I'll lead us through communion together in a minute. But just take some space, be with the Lord, ask him, Lord, show me ways that I am trying to save myself apart from the grace of Jesus. betrayed Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said this is my body given for you and on good friday 2000 some odd years ago Jesus body and fulfillment of the prophecy was bruised for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities as you, as you 
take and eat, church, would you remember the body of Christ that he took our sin on our behalf? Take and eat. same way he took a a cup of wine after supper and he said this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood Isaiah 53 talks about that blood and talks about the the saving work of Christ that all who trust in him throughout the scriptures this promise that all who trust in him are washed by the blood of Jesus that in God's upside down kingdom he would choose blood as a means of cleansing that all who are sinful, all who are weak, all who are crushed in our inadequacies, all who are corrupted by the weight and guilt of sin, that all would find cleansing. That by the blood of Christ, God would see us as not guilty, but holy and pure. So church, take and drink. We pray for us as we get ready to respond. Lord, Thank you. You There's so many ways that that, those two words seem inadequate. They seem like they don't fully say what we're trying to say, Lord. But, God, we don't have life without the cross. We don't have life without a death. We don't have eternal hope without your son being bruised marred, bloodied, killed. God, it's easy for our hearts to want to go back to the law, to want to go back to sacrifices, to want to go back to being our own kings, Lord. And I pray that you would keep us, and that you would fix our eyes on you, God, that you would glue us to the cross, not just on Good Friday, but every day. God, as we're living out our Tuesdays, as we're living out our Thursdays, God, as our hearts want to keep being pulled towards justifying ourselves, saving ourselves, you would remind us that our debt has been paid, not paid a little bit and to be added to, not paid with a loan that you're waiting to take away when we screw up, paid in full. call us to yourself you keep us with yourself salvation is solely a work of you beginning to end how would you help us not grow cold to this day cold to this reality cold to the death of your son as we feel the weight of what our sin cost Lord would you prepare our hearts that Sunday and the resurrection and eternal hope would be all the more sweet We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen.